This is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we are tackling a little topic that uh, has been making a few headlines here and there. Isn't that right, B? It's been a hot button topic in the news. You might have seen it. And we've decided for the first time since taking the reins here at Stuff Mom Never Told You that this is a topic, Silicon Valley sexism, that warrants a double episode, y'all. So buckle up because there are lots of stories we want to tell around the evolution of gender bias in computer science, in technology, in the world's most profitable industry right now that is resulting in women leaving STEM fields, and really tech in particular, at twice the rate than men are. And we need to uncover why Silicon Valley especially feels like such a toxic place for professional women to thrive, and how not only we can make a difference on that front, but how really courageous efforts are taking place at tech companies across the country, across the globe, uh, thanks to a lot of courageous whistleblowers who are demanding those changes be implemented so that women and men can both thrive equally. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like to ground this issue in is the idea of why this matters. A lot of folks say things like, oh, so women are leaving this field, who cares, big deal. But when you think about technology, these are people who are poised to tackle some of the most critical problems that are facing our world. Huge challenges. And if you don't have inclusive, diverse teams of people who are tackling those challenges, we all could suffer. Yeah. Think about all of the specific challenges that we face. If you don't have women, people of color, folks all along different spectrums tackling those issues, we could all be missing out. Think of all the tech innovation that women could be bringing us that they aren't because they're leaving this field. Exactly. Tech has been just regularly disruptive to the ways that we are creating a new kind of normal or creating a new future for the world. And so the fact that women are making up just about a quarter of those in tech or the fact that the numbers of women in computer science programs have actually been declining since the 80s is a problem. And we want to make sure that not only are we filling the pipeline into STEM fields and into tech in particular, but that we really take a critical look at how tech companies and how the cultures of inclusion can be developed to retain that kind of female talent and diverse talent along all different kinds of spectrums. Now, there was a huge article written, the cover story of the Atlantic magazine back in April, that really blew the lid off of this issue in in so many different ways, thanks in large part to some very courageous women whose stories we're going to tackle in part two here. But first, I think it's important that we get a lay of the land. I like to think of it as the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad land for women. (laughs) Very sexist land in the world of tech right now. But this article, what was, what was the title of this article, first of all? The title of this article is, Why is Silicon Valley so awful to women? And that really should give you a sense of what's happening here. It might sound hyperbolic. It might sound like there's no way it could really be this bad. 
Y'all, read this article because it's really that bad. It really is. And just to give you a quick glimmer into some of the stories that women professionals in tech shared through that article, The Atlantic came up with a great short video that we want to sample from right now. I was about to make a presentation at a tech conference when a male attendee gave me this unsolicited piece of advice. Don't be nervous. You're hot. No one expects you to do well. I'm a software engineer, and I'm regularly asked to take notes in meetings. None of the men are asked to do that. After giving a talk, I received abusive emails from men who said things like, I jerked off to the video of your talk. So as you can hear, through some intense interviews with senior women in tech, the Atlantic journalist Lisa Mundy describes a series of workplace environments, not just at one company, but at a series of companies throughout Silicon Valley and through the tech industry space that are only described as hostile towards women. And you might be thinking, yeah, but aren't so many industries really hostile for women? Isn't the law, isn't media, isn't uh, hospitals, aren't there lots of different industries that are really hostile to women? And I would counter by saying yes, and yet there is something very significant about the ways in which tech seems to exaggerate sexism and make it almost like a very acceptable bro-y space. Well, that's one of the things I found so troubling about her her account. It's this idea of it being just part of the infrastructure of the tech industry. So in other industries, sure, there is sexism and it's awful, but the ways in which she makes it sound foundational to the tech industry where people don't even think twice about it, it's not even something that's going on behind closed doors or an open secret. She's talking about men putting a hand on her thigh in public. She's talking about a culture where women know to protect their drinks because God only knows what someone's going to do to it. It's it's this idea of it being out in the open and having it be an accepted part of culture that people are no longer even bothering to call out and perhaps don't even find troubling or problematic or toxic. Exactly. In the article, she interviews Susan Wu, an entrepreneur and investor, who after years of just ignoring the BS and trying to fly above it, right, the idea of don't let the, you know, bastards get you down, right, just keep focused on your work and really ignoring the kind of overt and not so overt sexism that she witnessed in the workplace, things like being asked to fetch coffee even though you're the senior developmental engineer on this project, or overhearing that hiring women or people of color entailed, quote, lowering the bar, or this idea that women still felt silenced or attacked when expressing their opinions online through tech spaces or in the office. She finally says that something inside of her broke. She goes, quote, maybe it was at tech conferences and hearing herself the, quote, elder stateswoman warning younger women to cover up their drinks because such conferences known for alcohol, after parties, and hot women at product booths had been breeding grounds for unwanted sexual advances and assaults, and you never knew whether some jerk might put something in your cocktail. At one party, the founder of a startup told Wu she needed to spend intimate time with him to get in on his deal. An angel investor leading a different deal told her something similar. She became the master of warm but firm self-extrication. And really, just like you were saying, Bridget, these 
continuous unwanted sexual advances put senior women in tech in this very bizarre position. Well, I also think what's kind of telling is that she talks about how most women in tech have learned how to hone this specific skill of brushing off a man's sexual advances without hurting his ego. So imagine if that was a, if you worked in an industry where that was a skill that women just knew they had to develop if they wanted to get ahead. And she describes this, this, you know, this land of angel investors and people who are, who have the possibility to give you money to fund your great project. And all of that kind of hinges on your ability to make him not feel like his ego is bruised if you don't want to have sex with him. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's not covered in the soft skills classes. <laughs> that's, I don't think that's a line on people's resume. <laughs> I don't think it is. And why the hell should it be? You know what I'm saying? It really shouldn't have to be. Now you might be thinking, okay, Emily, okay, Bridget, so what? So we've got a handful of women's stories who are facing unwanted sexual advances and being hit on by their colleagues. That's pretty standard for the workplace, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of data coming out, especially recently from this new study done called The Elephant in the Valley, a groundbreaking survey that interviewed over 200 women, each with a decade of experience in tech. So these are basically senior tech women, 91% of whom currently reside in Silicon Valley. And the findings were dramatic. So pretty much, sexism is alive and well in the Valley, surprising nobody. 84% of women have been told they're too aggressive. 90% have witnessed sexist behavior at a company or an industry conference. 88% have witnessed clients or colleagues ask questions to their male colleagues that should have been addressed to them. 87% have received demeaning comments from male colleagues. 60% of women in tech have reported unwanted sexual advances. That number to me is staggering, more than half. I mean, I almost think about the up-in-arms rallying cries we're hearing about sexual assault on college campuses of being epidemic levels. Then you look at these adult human beings who are supposed to be mature enough to treat each other fairly. Oh, by the way, sexual assault is a crime. Okay. We're we're talking about a criminal situation here. Criminal behavior is just a thing (laughs) thing. that's happening in this industry. Yeah, that over half of women in tech report happening. Now, here's the scary part. Of those 60% who reported these unwanted sexual advances, 65% of them received those advances from a superior. (sighs) And this is where the power dynamic in tech is so huge. Tech is disrupting the world. Those people have, rightfully so in some ways, a God complex. The VCs involved in funding the future of how the entire world works. You know, this hyperbolic kind of Steve Jobs-esque, we're going to change the world. Is the, That's what they eat for breakfast every day. Yes. So these pseudo-gods among men come into the office feeling like, I am personally responsible for changing how the entire world works. I'm personally going to fund this. So, of course, I'm entitled to the bodies of the women I am around. Why that is so messed up to me is that the so the certainly everybody who is in a lot of these spaces is smart, capable, you know, great thinkers, all of that. Why is it that men, they, they get the God complex? Women, they're just as, I mean, if you're a woman working at Google, you are smart and capable and great. Yes. Why are we just giving, why are we just making space for men to have this God complex? We where, need some goddess complexes? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we do. I love it. It's like, instead of the, uh, imposter syndrome, yes. let's get the goddess, goddess syndrome. Go- goddess syndrome. <laughs> that's much, that's much less troubling I'm to me. I'm pretty sure that describes my, my syndrome. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to change the world one Sminty podcast. Yes. Time. Sminty listeners, y'all are all goddesses. Yeah, I love it. Um, furthermore, looking even deeper into these women who've experienced such assault and unwanted advances, 50% of them reported this kind of thing happening more than once. So this isn't a complete rarity over the course of their careers. 33% of them have feared for their personal safety during and or because of a work circumstance. That's awful. So if we want to unleash the full potential of our geniuses in tech, but 33% of these women who are reporting assaults are in fear for their personal safety, are those the kind of working conditions that are going to set our men and women to achieve their full potential in disrupting the world? Of course not. And I also think, I mean, nobody deserves to feel unsafe or scared for their own personal safety while they're at work. Exactly. And here's the deal. It's not just overt and seemingly frequent sexual assault and harassment that's happening. It doesn't have to be that overt for unconscious bias and sexism that's pervasive in tech to be really problematic. Just imagine, like many of these senior women in tech have reported, your credentials being constantly called into question. This idea of senior engineers being told in interviews you know, I'm just not sure you have the technical experience, even though you're a full-stack developer, even though you've been working in that capacity for a decade, maybe you should look at something more in marketing. And I think that's it's just so disgusting because coupled with all of this overt, gross sexual harassment that is rampant in these places, on top of that, also having your credentials being called into question day in and day yeah. out, it is like a death of a thou- by a thousand cuts, you know, where it's so many little things happening all at once, and after a while, it just breaks you. Exactly. It starts to chip away at your own sense of self and confidence, and that's the, that's the power of microaggressions. Now, beyond your credentials being called into question, there's also the element of your mere presence in the office is kind of raining on our boys' parade. And I remember being the only woman on a campaign, a congressional campaign, and literally one of my colleagues saying to me, when you got to the office, when you joined the team, you really messed everything up. You messed our whole vibe up. And I was like, really, dude? You're going to be that overt? He was. He thought he was being friendly. I mean, he thought he was being kind for telling me that. Well, this is my thing. I don't trust any industry where there are not a lot of women in high-up rankings. I mean, look at them. The military, the NFL, if you have an organization where there's not a lot of women around making choices and being decision makers, men left to their own devices, I don't trust it. I don't know how I don't I don't know how many industries you're gonna trust then, because it's not like I don't, too I don't good. trust anybody. So this amazing excerpt from Ellen Powell's forthcoming groundbreaking book, and don't you worry, we're gonna talk more about Ellen Powell. She you might recognize her name as someone who was involved in a very intense lawsuit on this very issue. But for now, before we dive into those details, I just want to sample from one of the chapters that was released through The Cut in New York Magazine. And she described that feeling of just not, the boys not wanting her to be around. Once she was airborne on a plane with the CEO of a company and a couple of her other VC partners and coworkers in the firm that she was working on, here's, here's what went down. Quote, once we were airborne, the CEO, who'd brought along a few bottles of wine, started bragging about meeting Jenna Jameson, talking about her career as the world's greatest porn star and how he had taken a photo with her at the Playboy Mansion. He asked if I knew who she was, 
and then proceeded to describe her pay-per-view series, Jenna's American Sex Star, on which women competed for porn movie contracts by performing sex acts before a live audience. Nope, I said, not a show I'm familiar with. Then the CEO switched topics to sex workers. He asked Ted what kind of girls he liked. Ted said he preferred white girls, Eastern European to be specific. Eventually, we all moved to the couch for a working session to help the tech CEO. He was trying to recruit a woman to his all-male board. I suggested Marissa Mayer, but the CEO looked at me dismissively and said, nah, too controversial. Then he grinned at Ted and added, though I would let her join the board because she's hot. (laughs) And then she says, somehow I got the distinct vibe that the group couldn't wait to ditch me. And once we landed at Tetterboro, the guys made plans to go to a club while I headed into Manhattan alone. Taking your seat at the table doesn't work so well, I thought, when no one wants you there. That is so powerful and awful and disgusting. Yep. So that's the kind of vibe that we're picking up from countless senior women in tech, that this is a Wild Wild West, Mad Men era-like Vibe right. that is overtly hostile to women. And what's, what strikes me about that story is that these guys seemingly did not think that was a problematic thing. They didn't think, oh, I probably shouldn't be saying this. I've had a few drinks. It wasn't, it, they didn't even maybe feel the need to walk it back or. Not at all. That's, it's just, it's just an open part of this climate. And these people are extremely powerful, extremely wealthy, extremely well connected. And can you just imagine having to humor them along and like, try to be pleasant while this is the kind of status quo conversation to be expected. Now, here's the thing. Women are leaving this field at more than twice the rate of men. That is the glaring statistic to me that I find especially problematic. And whether this culture of unconscious gender bias is overt or covert, whether it's involving malintent or not, the reality is that, quote, studies show that women who work in tech are interrupted in meetings more often than men, they're evaluated on their personality in a way that men are not, they are less likely to get funding from venture capitalists whose studies also show fine pitches delivered by men, especially handsome men, (sighs) more persuasive. And in a particularly cruel irony, women's contributions to open-source software are accepted more often than men's are, but only when their gender is unknown. Wow. This reminds me so much of that, of those two women who recently revealed that they had um, come up with a fake male CEO of their organization yeah. to get, and it helped them get funding. Right. I can only imagine what it must be like to be in a field where you know the lay of the land is so crappy for women that you have to have all of these really clever ways of navigating the space because it's just so awful. There's no other way to get ahead. Exactly. And some would say, wait a second, aren't women just leaving tech because They want to drop out to become parents or they want to spend more time in their personal lives. And what would you say to that? I can understand why people would think that, but the research says otherwise. It's actually not why women are dropping out. They're actually going to other fields where they can use their their hard tech skills in other ways. A report from the Center for Talent Innovation found that when women drop out of tech, it's usually not for family reasons, nor do they drop out because they dislike the work. To the contrary, they enjoy it and in many cases take jobs in sectors where they can use their tech skills. Rather, the report concludes that, quote, workplace conditions, a lack of access to key creative roles, and a sense of feeling stalled in one's career are the main reasons why women leave. 
undermining behavior from managers is also a major factor. So basically, these women are not dropping out of the workforce to, be, to you know, start families, become parents. They're staying in sectors that allow them to use their incredibly specialized skills, but they just don't want to do it in an industry that treats them like crap. Right. And that's why so many tech companies right now are struggling to figure out how can we adapt? What can we do to make what is already a very appealing sector in terms of the kind of salaries that you can get, the kind of benefits, the kind of workplace flexibility that's offered at tech companies? All of those benefits are pretty compelling and pretty attractive. So how can we make sure that our culture isn't driving women in tech away? So when we come back, we're going to share the inspiring and truly courageous actions that are being taken by women in tech who won't stand idly by and let the status quo persist. And it's really due to whistleblowers like these women that companies are starting to not just make promises, but really put their money where their mouths are on this. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And we are back. And like you, listeners, our blood is boiling thinking about what it must feel like to be a woman in STEM who's constantly questioned on your credentials, on your mere presence in the office, being somewhat annoying to your male colleagues, if not the subject of their sexual desire. But before we go any further, we have to talk about Ellen Powell and the lawsuit that she filed after working for six years at the Silicon Valley VC firm, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. She'd been a junior partner and chief of staff for managing partner John Doerr. And Kleiner, the firm she was working at, was then one of the three most powerful venture capital firms in the world. So this VC firm was involved in hugely disruptive tech companies and making those ideas possible. Pow published a sample chapter from her book in TheCut.com describing some of the sexual harassment that she faced um, while working there. And her reports are so troubling. She says, seven months later, I would sue Kleiner Perkins for sexual harassment and discrimination in a widely publicized case in which I would often be cast as the villain. Incompetent, greedy, aggressive, and cold. My husband and I were both dragged through the mud, our privacy destroyed. It's really shocking to me how she describes starting out being so happy about this job. She talks about how the job description sounded like it was basically her resume. But then she finds all of these cracks in what seemed to be this like great situation. She says that her boss specifically requested an Asian woman because he liked the idea of a tiger mom. I can't imagine hearing that and then still feeling good about a job that I was supposed to be doing. And that was like an early warning an sign. An early red flag back, for yeah. her. She goes on to say... Sometimes the whole world felt like a nerdy frat house. People in the venture world spoke so fondly about the early shenanigans at big companies. A friend told me how I used to sublet an office space for to Facebook only to find people having sex there on the floor in the main public area. And that was looked back on it with, like, delightful charm and nostalgia. Like, isn't this a fun workplace environment? Remember when we used to have sex on the floor in public at work? The good old days before the women came in and ruined it all. I mean, that's that's really the vibe you get is that it is like a frat party. And that's almost what's appealing about it. There's almost an element of uh, the mythology of early startup culture like Facebook's rise. Having worked in Silicon Valley, what I see time and time again being lifted in her story is that in Silicon Valley, the early kind of ragtag wild, wild west, people don't look back on those times 
with disgust or horror or saying, oh, gee, we sure didn't have it figured out then. They look back on it with glee and with, with they think it's very charming. And so plenty of startups start and they have kind of a janky yeah. culture. They don't have an HR department. There are three people in a, in a basement or whatever. Right. But to look back on all the wild times you had when you didn't know what you were doing, you should be looking back on it at least being a little bit embarrassed, not looking back and saying, gee, those were the good old days and we could just do whatever and there were no rules. Yeah, and and the central characters to a lot of those early stories are all men. That's the thing. It's like no one's aware of who's not at the table. No right. one's cognizant of what didn't happen, which is getting the input of a diverse array of people at the start of our companies. And not every company, but a lot of companies. Look at the movie about the invention of Facebook. It's like that is seen as cool. It's seen as exciting. Like yes. all of all of those shenanigans are is seen as a good thing. And here's the thing: the shenanigans you're talking about, they were alive and well in her venture capital firm, the third largest in the world. She went on a business trip when her colleague, Ajit, basically starts hitting on her pretty aggressively, tries to get into her hotel room, is expressing all of this sadness over his marriage that's not sexually satisfying and making the case for why they should have an affair or be together. She expressed nothing but protestations, tried to get him out of her room, and years of this, like continuous kinds of hitting on her, unwanted sexual advances, came to a head when he said, I left my wife and I want to be with you. And she started to think, hey, maybe this, maybe this is a relationship I should concede to. Maybe this is something I should pursue, only to find out after they hooked up that he'd actually lied. He was very much still married. He was very much still his wife. So she cut things off. She was livid. And basically, she did not have the skill set we described at the start of this podcast, which is how to sexually reject your male colleagues without bruising his ego. Because quite literally... The next morning after the first sexual rejection she had to give to this dude, he was livid. Quote, he stormed off to the airport by himself. So she's trying to manage relationships with her colleagues and keep things professional. He's trying to get in her pants. And like, can you just imagine on top of the million dollar deals you're navigating, the potential for total industry disruption that you have to worry about, that you're also trying to figure out how not to piss off your married coworker who wants to sleep with you. What resonates with me from that story is that not only is it dealing with the super overt, you know, when your boss shows up at your hotel door in a robe in the middle of the night, it's all, and you have to navigate that in a way that doesn't hurt his feelings. It's also navigating an entire slew of things that you really shouldn't be responsible for on top of your, your, your job. Exactly. So it's, it's not just the overt gross things. It's also, the less overt, navigating all of that just because you're a woman. Exactly. And she goes on to describe how she did elevate this issue to HR. Multiple women at the firm were being hit on by this colleague. Multiple people were feeling harassed. They went to HR. The firm clearly was not willing to make the hard decisions about actually rectifying the situations that the women at the firm felt safe. She goes on to describe how he became increasingly aggressive about getting in between her and her business. Her deals were being sniped on by her colleagues. She was being called by some of the CEOs for the ventures that she had backed. This was like her venture, her project. And the CEO would call saying, hey, one of your colleagues just called me going around you to talk about being a board member. 
and trying to replace you. So she's being sniped on at all ends. Life at Kleiner got progressively worse for her, she says. At one point, I found out the partners had taken some CEOs and founders on an all-male ski trip. They spent $50,000 on the private jet to and from Vail. I was later told that they didn't invite any women because women probably wouldn't want to share a condo with men. So she ends up making a claim after an independent investigation into widespread sexual assault and discrimination at Kleiner went undealt with, completely undealt with by the company itself. And her claim, which was 12 pages covering everything that had happened to her over seven years at Kleiner, really specified gender discrimination in promotion, in pay, retaliation against her after she reported that harassment. And basically, she says, quote, I asked for damages to cover the lost pay and prevent them from doing it again. Meanwhile, Kleiner had notified me that its investigation was done, its internal investigation. The finding was that there'd been no retaliation or discrimination at all. Oh, isn't that convenient? Isn't it? Basically, here's the sad part of the story. They crushed her in court. They absolutely decimated Powell. Their attorneys outsmarted Powell's attorneys at every turn. They turned her story into a widespread PR campaign against this greedy, selfish, cold, heartless woman, Ellen Powell. And they created even troll farms to create integrated networks of influence used for, quote, reputation management. Um, And so basically they said, they made this case in court that it's the kind of sexism you couldn't quite legally prove. Right. And I think what's really so telling is this bit from her investigation. She says, at one point, the investigator asked in a gotcha tone, well, if they look down on women so much and if they block you from opportunities, they don't include you at their events, why do they even keep you around in the first place? And here's what she says. I replied slowly as the answer crystallized in my mind. If you had the opportunity to have workers who were overeducated, underpaid, and highly experienced, whom you could dump all the menial tasks that you didn't want to do on, whom you could get to clean up all the problems, and whom you could create a second class out of, wouldn't you want them to stay? Man. Yeah. That just really nails the the sort of toxic paradox of what was going on there. And after working there, she went on to be the CEO of Reddit, again, sort of came in as this person who was supposed to clean up what was a, a really toxic, gross, messed up culture. And she'd already been set up with this horrible PR campaign about how awful she was. She was this greedy, cold person who was being sent in to clean up the boys club. And people, even, you know, everyday Redditors, really treated her like crap, I think, because of how she was set up in that lawsuit. I completely agree. And it's so depressing to read about this until we realize what the long-term effect is. And this is part of the idea of our justice system being supremely imperfect and not always able to deliver equal justice under the law. Because what was a short-term loss for Ellen Powell, in my opinion, had a long-term positive effect that some people even call the POW effect. She describes it as saying that reporters came up to me with a name for the phenomenon of women or minorities in tech suing or speaking up, because that's what happened after her lawsuit. Even though it was a failed lawsuit, women in tech were leaving the office to watch the hearing. People were tuning in, bringing their daughters to court to watch the briefings. This had a huge impact, especially in Silicon Valley, in terms of seeing, okay, how accountable are we holding VCs? Right. 
when it comes to harassment and discrimination. Her upcoming book called Reset by Ellen Powell describes her lawsuit in the context of what has developed since 2012 when this first went down. And I am optimistic in hearing of some of the incredibly courageous whistleblowing women who've come after her, notably this year. Yeah. When you look at this Ellen Powell effect of all these women, first of all, watching her lawsuit unfold with this kind of hope or kind of, you know, what's going to happen attitude. And then all these courageous women who she inspired. I think it really goes back to this idea that as a woman or a person of color or any kind of marginalized person in this space, when you speak up, it obviously has consequences and that's a, a tough choice. But you never know who you're inspiring to do the same. You never know what culture shift you are kickstarting. And I really think that by having this big public lawsuit, that she was kickstarting a culture shift that we're seeing the effects of today. Yeah, and honestly, you have to read her book or this chapter in the cut to hear just how much of a toll the lawsuit took on her. I mean, she ended up losing a pregnancy from it. She was physically ill from the stress and the continuous harassment. Not only are we talking about professional losses, but her personal life was seriously dragged through the mud in a way that was devastating. So the sacrifices she made, we have to make sure that they pay off. And one of the women whose name comes to mind this year who has carried that torch forward is Susan Fowler. You might have read her viral account of her workplace experience at Uber that went pretty crazy on the internet not that long ago, maybe a couple months ago. It was in February of this year, and she titled her own blog post reflecting on one very, very strange year at Uber. In it, she really meticulously documented all the kinds of ways in which her claims in HR fell on deaf ears, how the systemic presence of gender-based discrimination made her feel hopelessly held back to the point where she ended up leaving because no one was doing anything about the kind of sexual harassment she'd been experiencing. And that viral blog post finally ended up triggering an internal investigation that led to the firing of 20 employees. And shortly thereafter, due to a lot of public pressure put on Uber and 20 other women at Uber who basically shared their comparable stories, it led to Travis Kalanick stepping down as CEO. Yeah, I mean, her her story is incredible. If you haven't read it, you should read the whole thing. This may sound like a small detail, but something that I that just sticks with me from her story, it's just like we were talking about this idea of the kind of sexism you couldn't prove in court. Her story obviously has all kinds of super over messed up stuff, but one of the small details that I thought I remember thinking, God, this this was really just crap all the way down. The company bought special jackets oh, for yeah. all the for all the dudes on the team, and she didn't get they didn't get any jackets for the women. And so she was like, "Yo, can we the women get jackets?" And they were like, "Oh, well, if y'all want jackets, you can just pay for them yourselves." <laughs> and something about that, where in a lawsuit that probably would be easy to make it seem. Like it wasn't Frivolous. a big deal. Yeah. But can you imagine if your team, if they, if, some, if they got a treat or something like that or a, a perk or a gift and you just didn't get it? Like it's so, it's such a small thing, 
but it really highlights how deep and how pervasive this culture was. Exactly. And Susan Fowler's experience sort of built on Ellen Powell, the Ellen Powell effect in The Verge. There's a really great rundown of this chronological domino effect that happened, saying that, quote, meanwhile, what was happening at Uber was echoing across the industry in other companies. In late February, a female engineer sued Tesla for sexual harassment and discrimination and was later fired in what she claims was retaliation. Then multiple women came forward claiming they'd been harassed by venture capitalist Justin Caldwell of Binary Capital. The accusation snowballed until Caldbeck resigned and Binary Capital collapsed when investors pulled their funds. They go on to say, with the collapse of binary capital, more women came forward to accuse other venture capitalists like Dave McClure and Chris Saka. And it all culminated in this big New York Times expose in which senior women in tech sat down, named names, got clear about their claims. And this kind of whistleblowing didn't happen in a court of law. It happened in the public domain. And going public with these stories seems to be the only thing that's had real impact and ramifications, and it has caused some of these guys at least temporary career setbacks. What's so important about what you just said is that they were willing to say who it is. I think as a woman in fields that have been pretty much male-dominated, so much of when we share information with each other is sort of kind of becomes kind of whisper campaigns. I have long said there is power in gossip. Gossip is, like, don't discount gossip as, you know, whatever, frivolous. Gossip is how people who don't have power get the word out. And so for a long time in my own industry, there have been whisper campaigns about noted sexual harassers. And it wasn't until someone vocally said, this is who it is. This is what happened. Other people say, yeah, it happened to me. Yeah, it happened to me. You don't have to have it be, you know, whisper campaigns. Watch out for this guy. Watch out for that guy. When you go on the record, it's hard. When you name names, it's tough. There are consequences. But that is the thing that's going to be that first domino that can really create lasting culture change. Exactly. I think that this culture of sexism thrives in the dark. Definitely. And that shedding any kind of light on it is the first step to reconciling what the heck we're going to do about this. So when we come back, we're going to talk about why an industry like tech that for all of its newness doesn't really have the same historical baggage with gender discrimination. So why a why does this industry that's still relatively young in terms of its historical existence have such a backwards Mad Men era-like culture of overt hostility towards women? And of course, what we can do about it. We'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back. And we're talking about why tech is so overtly hostile to women in particular. We've heard a little bit about the whistleblowers, the brave change makers, Ellen Powell, who really paved the way for other women to come out and share their stories of hostile work environments and sexism in tech. But first, before we go any further in this conversation, can we just take a temperature check, Bridget, and say... Why is tech so sexist to begin with? It's not like medicine. It's not like the law whereby they have a long history of gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. Right, women not even being able to study these things. Exactly, on the books, historically. This is a supposedly data-driven industry, right, that's so obsessed with optimizing our world and disrupting the old way of thinking 
why on earth can't this basically pubescent industry get woke when it comes to women? I mean, what are some of the reasons why tech seems to really struggle with this in particular? Well, there's a few theories behind it, one of which is this idea of the genius fallacy. Basically, in tech, we have this idea that people who become these big tech people are innate geniuses. And think about other fields like surgery or astronomy or law. Maybe you think of some people as having more aptitude than others, but you don't think of them as being innately born with some sort of magical quality that makes them better or the best. But tech isn't really like that. A 2015 study published in Science confirmed that computer science and certain other fields, including physics, math, and philosophy, fetishize brilliance, cultivating the idea that potential is inborn. The report concluded that these fields tend to be problematic for women, owing to a stubborn assumption that genius is a male trait. So basically, if we're all thinking that men just have the ability to be born geniuses and women aren't really like that, it cultivates this really toxic idea that the men are the rulers of this industry and women are just sort of second-class citizens. I'm almost thinking of Russell Crowe's character in A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yeah. No? I mean, think about it. Even in pop culture, we do not see the... the not, we, maybe we do, and if you think of you know shows that do this, let me know. But Hidden Figures. Thank you. That's the first movie I've seen. Yes, but in Hidden Figures, they're not treated as, no. as special. They're treated as they work super hard and blah, blah, blah. You're right. I'm talking about where it's, you know the Steve Jobs origin story where he was just born and was always different and blah, blah, blah. Women are not afforded that same kind of glowing illustration of of why they're good at what they do. That same science study found that the more a field valued giftedness, the fewer female PhDs there would be. And it pointed out the same pattern being true for people of color. And again, if you think of genius as being innately white and male, and then you don't even unpack what that means for your industry, I think it's really problematic and probably one of the reasons why tech is seen as so terrible for people who aren't white men. Exactly. Especially when venture capital, the whole model of VC funding relies on making these sort of gut decisions around whose companies you believe in enough to throw your dollars behind. And so when there's those kinds of genius fallacies impeding our ability to see women or people of color as having that special something, it's going to have this chain impact of not giving them the funding to even have the shot to take their company to the next level. Exactly. And we know that people give funding to people who remind them of themselves. So that innate unconscious bias there too, it just, it sort of compounds time and time and time again. Another theory behind why tech is especially struggling with sexism has something to do with the meritocracy paradox. Here, back in the Atlantic magazine piece, they write, quote, We don't have the same histories of exclusion, says Joelle Emerson, the founder and CEO of Paradigm, a firm in San Francisco that advises companies on diversity and inclusion. But being new comes with its own problems. Because Silicon Valley is a place where a newcomer can unseat the most established player, many people there believe, despite evidence everywhere to the contrary, that tech is a meritocracy. People truly believe that those who work hard and perform well, we'll get ahead. And I know, listening, you might think, yeah, if I work hard and I perform well, I'm going to get ahead. That's our, that's the promise that's been made to me. And that's the promise that's been perpetuated in the American lore and the American dream from, I don't know, the industrial revolution on up. However, this very belief in a meritocracy can perpetuate inequality. A 2010 study 
called The Paradox of Meritocracy on Organizations, found that in cultures that espouse this meritocracy idea, managers may in fact, quote, show greater bias in favor of men over equally performing women. Surprise, surprise. Wah, wah, wah. I mean, that's <laughs> depressing. In fact, they did three experiments in which researchers presented participants with profiles of similarly performing people of both genders and asked them to award bonuses based on their performance. The researchers found that telling participants that their company valued merit-based decisions only increased the likelihood of their giving higher bonuses to the men. So basically, when you say, I'm rewarding people based on merit, and you prime the participants in that study, they're more likely to associate male achievement as merit-based. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I think going back to this idea of, you know, the tech industry loves talking about how it's data-driven, it's really efficient, like mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. But belief in a meritocracy is not data-driven. There's so much data saying, no, the tech industry is not a meritocracy. It doesn't work that way. Yet, this industry continues to cling to this idea despite all data proving otherwise. Exactly. And while also claiming to be very data-driven and efficient. It makes no sense. It doesn't. It's it's the biggest hypocrisy of tech, in my opinion. And really, this reminded me of a paragraph in the very beginning of Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg that stuck out to me, and I have seen almost nobody talk about it, but to a fault, because I think this is really important. The whole concept of leaning in, of working hard, of saying yes, of having your seat at the table, basically assumes that there's a meritocracy, that the harder you work, the more, you know, in your face or the more assertive you are as a woman in tech, you'll have better outcomes. And yet, in the start of her book, here's what Sheryl Sandberg says, quote, One stumbling block is that many people believe that the workplace is largely a meritocracy, which means we look at individuals, not groups, and determine that differences in outcomes must be based on merit, not gender. Men at the top are often unaware of the benefits they enjoy simply because they're men, and this can make them blind to the disadvantages associated with being a woman. By the way, like... Double this, like, ditto that for people of color. Yeah, I was saying, as you were reading that, I was thinking, (laughs) it sounds just like something else I know. (laughs) Always white supremacy. Right, exactly. She goes on to write, women lower down also believe that men at the top are entitled to be there. So they try to play by the rules and work harder to advance rather than raise questions or voice concerns about the possibility of bias. As a result, everyone becomes complicit in perpetuating an unjust system. And it really shows how we all, women, men, wherever you are on the spectrum, we're all cogs in this one messed up system. Exactly. And that messed up system is not something we're growing out of. No, we're leaning into it. Right, (laughs) exactly. It's not something that's just going to go away with time. I think a lot of baby boomers and women in my grandmother's generation like to think, oh, women are advancing. Things are getting better. You don't know what it was like to really experience sexism. But we have to remind ourselves this is not something that we are inevitably getting over as a society, which means we need proactive, assertive solutions on the part of companies. And frankly, the good news here is that we are talking about it because this stuff is 
everywhere. I in researching for this episode, I couldn't go a day without something else, something brand new popping up on my social media feeds or someone tweeting at me a brand new article that needed to be internalized. And that is why we have so much more to share that we need to really uh queue up our next episode on this, right? This is a burly topic. It's a topic that's ever-evolving, ever-changing, but it's not all doom and gloom. There is good news on the horizon, I think, for this issue. I think it's an issue that if we talk about, we really can get somewhere with. Exactly. Back in 2014, Google was amongst the first to release data on the number of women and minorities that it employed. Thanks to organizations like Color of Change, who actually had to push tech organizations to disclose these numbers. A lot of them... Some of them did it right away, but a lot of them didn't do it. Exactly. And once Google did it, there was a lot more pressure. And so kudos to Color of Change and advocates who were involved in making that happen. Once they did release the numbers, everyone looked at them and was like, ooh, that's not good. That is no good for a data-driven decision-making company whose uh, phrase is, don't be evil. Right. (laughs) And while we're talking about Google, I would like to just make clear that I have done work and been paid for that work to help Google with its gender equity efforts in the past. But I like the way that Google really stepped up and kind of was a leader in this in this practice by saying, you know, we're going to release it. It might not be pretty, but we're going to take a step to sort of kickstart the conversation. Exactly. And what what came of that was that the companies pledged to spend hundreds of millions of dollars changing their work climates, altering the composition of their leadership and refining their hiring practices. So really, there's a lot of hope in that millions have been spent and more have been pledged to solve this problem. And on our next episode, on part two of Silicon Valley Sexism, we're going to explore how well, or sometimes not so well, those efforts are progressing. We'll talk through some of the latest proposed solutions, the resulting pushback that we're hearing from men, especially a certain man, a certain manifesto writing man at Google, and some of the pushback that we're overcoming as people who are advocating for gender equality. We also want to make sure in the next episode to cover how you, yes, you, every single one of us can make a difference and have an impact to further ensure that tech is a safe and welcoming space for women's talents and careers to fully reach their potential. We know this is a burly one. Please stick with us to the next episode and we'll We'll learn and grow together, tech industry. And we want to hear what you have to say about this. If you're a woman in tech, like I was for a while, what's your experience been like? If you're a dude in tech, what have you seen? Please get in touch with us. We really want to hear your stories. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, and via email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 